Matt is a second-year OBGYN resident in Overland Park, Kansas. He recently reached out to me regarding fetal fibronectin. Matt, thanks for reaching out and for suggesting an extremely relevant and important topic to cover. Here's what I have found in my close to two decades of clinical practice. Although FFN was first reported by Charles Lockwood in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1991 as a possible marker for preterm birth, I have continuously found that there's misuse underuse, and at times misunderstanding of what FFN can do and is supposed to do. Is FFN a way to prevent preterm birth? And how can we best maximize its negative predictive value? And Matt, here's a real clinical question for you that we're going to answer in this podcast. If you're evaluating a patient the next time you're on call and you suspect her of having preterm labor under 35 weeks and her FFN test is negative, following transvaginal ultrasound for cervical length, is it really safe to send her home? I mean, should we really trust the FFN results to guide management? Well, we're going to cover all of this data regarding the use, misuse, and occasional misunderstandings regarding fetal fibronectin. Matt, thanks for reaching out. It's a great topic to cover. Here we go. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Although this podcast will reference fetal fibronectin, this is not a paid endorsement for any single product. Preterm birth remains a major cause of neonatal morbidity and often mortality in the United States. Signs and symptoms of preterm birth are not specific enough to be used alone as a reliable preterm birth risk factor, and that can be both confusing and frustrating for clinicians. Even ACOG has stated that of all patients being evaluated for symptoms of preterm labor, more than 50% will ultimately deliver at term. That data was originally published by Goldenberg et al. back in 2008. Although many women presenting with preterm labor symptoms deliver at term, it's critical for us as healthcare providers to identify that subset of patients who are at greatest risk of delivering preterm. By identifying this high-risk cohort, patients may then be admitted for observation or transferred to a facility with an appropriate level neonatal intensive care unit. All right, Clinical Pearls family, remember if you're ever asked on a board or on the wards, what's the risk factor that carries the highest probability of preterm birth? Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is having a previous history of preterm birth. That's the single highest factor to predict preterm birth recurrence. When it comes to preterm birth, there are only two strategies here for us to try to win this fight against our foe, which is preterm birth. First is to successfully prevent all preterm birth. And the other strategy is to best prepare the child for preterm birth as a possibility. Well, unfortunately, despite our best efforts, we just don't have the tools to successfully prevent preterm birth in any meaningful way. And that's why preterm birth is still out there. 
interventions like vaginal progesterone or IM progesterone that carried so much weight and trust historically since it were first published have recently been critically reviewed and their efficacy has been questioned. You all know that we've covered that topic on several podcasts in our archives and it all kind of fell to shreds with the prolonged trial. And man, were our hearts broken because we thought that really we had at least a good weapon against this foe, this villain of preterm birth. Well, despite all of the data and all the controversy going around with progesterone, it does seem that vaginal progesterone has the best data rather than I am progesterone for having a chance against preterm birth. And even cerclage efficacy is now under fire because even with patients with a short cervix and a prior history of preterm birth, the efficacy of cervical cerclage has now come under scrutiny and under fire as well as having, well, conflicting values for efficacy. All right, podcast family, now just to be clear, I'm not throwing progesterone under the bus or cerclage. It's just that they probably don't do what we once hoped that they would do for preterm birth. And if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Chapa, what about, what, what about tocolytics? I mean, we've got great tocolytics like Indocin. No, I didn't forget about tocolytics. I mean, tocolytics are there, and Indocin does work under 30 to 32 weeks. But remember that tocolytics' job isn't really to prevent overall preterm birth. It's just meant to buy enough time to get antenatal steroids on board to help the baby's lungs. That's the job of tocolytics. So while most tocolytics can probably delay preterm birth for 24 to 48 hours, they just don't make a dent overall in any reasonable or true successful way in preventing birth under 37 weeks. All right, so remember, we're talking about two strategies here to try to knock out preterm birth. One is get rid of preterm birth by some effective tool. Well, we're definitely not there. So that's why strategy number two still has value, and this is where FFN comes in. Because if strategy one is to just knock out and prevent preterm birth, well, we know we're just not doing all that great of a job with that. But strategy two is trying to prepare the child for the possibility of preterm birth in those patients that are actually at highest risk to have preterm delivery. And this is where FFN comes in, but not as a standalone test. FFN has never been meant to be used in isolation, but it's meant to be used with its partner, which is transvaginal ultrasound. Now, we're going to get into all of this, but the big take-home is the job of this protocol of FFN is to try to predict which patients are at highest risk for preterm birth, ideally within one or two weeks, and which babies would benefit from interventions to try to get prepared for this possibility of early delivery. Well, these interventions include things like magsulfate for fetal neuroprotection, of course, under 32 weeks, and the administration of antenatal corticosteroids for fetal lung maturation. Ah, but the flip side of that coin, Matt, is that if we can identify those that are high risk to deliver, that's great. But there's also value in ruling out those who likely will not deliver within the ensuing 7 to 14 days. Because if they're at very low risk of delivering in that time frame, then we can avoid exposing them to medications that they may not need, like antenatal steroids or MAG. All right, podcast family, when we come back, we're going to tackle this transvaginal ultrasound FFN algorithm and when to use this for maximizing results. Remember, FFN is not a standalone test, but when used as a partner, as a follow-up to transvaginal ultrasound, in the correct population, there's value there to help guide management. So let's tackle specifically FFN first, and then we'll plug it in into the algorithm. 
Fetal fibronectin is a glycoprotein that's found in the extracellular substance of the decidua basalis next to the innervillus spaces. Although its exact function is uncertain, it appears to be an adhesive glue at the chorio-decidual junction. Fetal fibronectin should not be detectable between 22 and 35 weeks of pregnancy. Elevated levels during this time frame reflect some kind of disturbance or even inflammation at the junction between the amniotic sac and the endometrial basalis layer. Even though fetal fibronectin can be found in the cervical vaginal secretions before 22 weeks and after 35, it shouldn't be found in between those two markers, in between those two boundaries. And it's very well published that in patients with signs or symptoms of preterm labor that have FFN between 22 and 35 weeks at a minimal value of 50 nanograms per ml, that's a risk factor for subsequent preterm birth. But remember, FFN is not a standalone test. When it's used as an independent predictor of preterm birth, neither its positive predictive value nor its negative predictive value is reproducible. In other words, if somebody comes in and they're puffing away and you're concerned about preterm birth and you collect an FFN at 28 weeks and you send that off alone without transvaginal ultrasound first, then those results are really not helpful. This was actually published in 2016 by a great MFM physician out of Thomas Jefferson University. And this was published in the Gray Journal. Vincenzo Berghella was that lead author and found that just using FFN by itself without the cervical length algorithm really didn't have any value for the prediction or the prevention of preterm birth. So what does that mean? Should we not use FFN for preterm birth prediction? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means not to be used by itself because if you just throw that into the mix without placing it in the proper place in the algorithm, then its value is kind of lost. All right, now let's hold on here for just a minute because we just said, remember, that FFN's job isn't actually to prevent preterm birth. It's just meant to identify those who would benefit from interventions to better prepare the child in case preterm birth happened and to rule out those who don't need that intervention. But here's an interesting angle. Barner et al. published in the American Journal of Managed Care. Yeah, I know none of us read that, but it's out there. In the American Journal of Managed Care, that patients who were screened with FFN testing actually remained pregnant longer than patients who didn't go FFN testing. Isn't that interesting? Now, in other words, Doing the investigation of preterm birth, because FFN ended up being positive when put into the algorithm of preterm labor eval, they actually remained pregnant, even though FFN is not meant to, to delay preterm birth. And the reason is because those patients had extra attention, whether it was hydration or looking for cervical infections like gonorrhea, chlamydia, or potentially BV, or just doing that active close follow-up of these patients, they actually stayed pregnant longer than those who didn't have FFN. So remember, FFN's job is not to prevent preterm birth. It's meant to identify those who need extra interventions and those who don't. But for those patients whose workup included FFN as part of this cervical length algorithm, then those patients actually delivered later than those who didn't have FFN testing at all. Because once they tested positive, it triggered other evaluations, hydration, looking for infections, a close short-term follow-up, and those interventions, not the FFN itself, but the interventions that were triggered by that triage pathway, then those patients actually delivered later compared to those who didn't have FFN testing at all. 
Interesting. Okay, so where are we at? FFN should not be used as a standalone test. Got it. And while FFN is not meant to prevent preterm birth in and of itself, the evaluation of preterm birth and active interventions with symptomatic patients, that may reduce the incidence of deliveries under 37 weeks. Just remember that FFN is not to be used in isolation. And we're reminded of this in ACOG's Practice Bulletin 234. Quote, Although the absence of fetal fibronectin in young women with preterm labor symptoms has a high negative predictive value, the presence of fetal fibronectin has a low positive predictive value in asymptomatic women, and therefore fetal fibronectin is not recommended as a primary screening test for preterm birth in asymptomatic women, end quote. So two big take-homes there and two big clinical pearls. Number one, it's not to be used in asymptomatic women. And number two, it's not meant to be used as any type of primary screen. It's only be meant to be used after transvaginal ultrasound when the results are indeterminate. And I'm going to get into that next. FFN is meant to be used selectively in conjunction or as a follow-up to transvaginal ultrasound. This protocol was originally described by Gomez et al. in 2005 and then later in 2007 by a separate RCT by Vincenzo Berghella. As an algorithm test, FFN has the ability to decrease unnecessary hospitalizations, interventions, and healthcare costs. And for those who screen positive, again, when placed in the proper algorithm, it can help to better identify those who would most benefit from these interventions. Now let's put this algorithm into perspective. This was published in 2005 by Gomez et al. in the Gray Journal. That's the American Journal of OBGYN. Gomez combined fetal fibronectin results with transvaginal cervical length in patients presenting with symptoms or signs of preterm labor between 22 and 35 weeks of gestation. Gomez found that using these two tests back-to-back improved the diagnostic performance of each test and could better predict which patients were at risk to deliver within the ensuing seven days. Yes, for sure, for sure. We're going to go through the algorithm here in just a minute. But I wanted to clear up this thing about transvaginal ultrasound. Because remember, there's two approaches here, all right? There's two different ways to do transvaginal ultrasound to check the cervical length. First is universal screening. That's the patient who's not having any complaints and they just get a cervical length assessment as it should be as part of the routine, you know, fetal anatomical review at 18 to 22 weeks. That's in the otherwise general population, no history of preterm birth, universal screen, okay? If they do have a history of preterm birth, then you can begin serial assessments of transvaginal cervical length starting as early as 16 weeks, all right? So that's universal screening. And then there's the triage approach to cervical length. It is this triage approach to cervical length assessment where FFN fits in. And this is done between 22 and 35 weeks. Remember, that's the only time when FFN has value because it should not be detected. And if it is detected, could be a marker of preterm birth. Even though, spoiler, the positive predictive value of FFN is only about 20 to 40% based on who you read. The value comes in in its negative predictive value because it's done between those two guideposts, all right, 22 to 35 weeks. The negative predictive value is 99.5%, meaning if that FFN is negative, then her chance of going into preterm labor in the ensuing seven days up to 14 is extremely low. It's not zero but it's extremely low. Now, we're going to tackle all that in a minute, but just remember that its value lies in its negative predictive value. 
I like to remember it, that FFN is to preterm labor as what amnesure is to ruptured membranes, all right? Both of those tests have value in their negative predictive value, whereas their positive predictive value is, meh, not all that helpful. Oh, don't send me a message that amnesure positive results are always positive. Yes, it's very good. But remember, even ACOG says that about 20 to 30% of the time, a positive amnesure test can be false positive because it's so sensitive at picking it up that it may detect subclinical little leaks or breaks that are not clinically evident. Okay, so no, I'm not throwing amnesure under the bus. I'm just saying the gold standard for ruptured membranes, remember, isn't the amnesure test, it's sterile spec exam. But the value in both of these tests lies in their negative predictive value. Okay, everybody good? Good. Please don't send me ugly messages. All right, back to triage assessment and cervical length determination. When patients present with signs or symptoms of preterm labor between 22 weeks and 35 weeks, here's where cervical length can have value. Because data has always shown for the last 30 years that the shorter the cervix, the higher the risk of delivering early. IAMS and colleagues showed that patients with a short cervix defined as less than 25 millimeters or 2.5 centimeters at less than 24 weeks of gestation were significantly more likely to deliver preterm than those that had a cervical length greater than 25 millimeters. The risk of preterm birth increases significantly as cervical length decreases. This IM study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996. So before we get into FFN, we got to talk about what normal cervical length values are, okay? And the short answer is, well, that depends on what institution you're at. In general, a cervical length greater than 2.5 centimeters is considered normal, and a cervical length less than 1.5 centimeters is considered abnormal or abnormally short. Now, some institutions use a cutoff value of 3 centimeters for normal cervical length, but most agree that the cutoff for the lower end of normal is 1.5, okay? So everybody agrees a transvaginal ultrasound of less than or equal to 1.5 centimeters is high risk and greater than a minimum of 2.5 or 3 centimeters, depending on where you're at, is normal. So if they are greater than 2.5 centimeters with signs and symptoms of preterm labor, as long as they're not ruptured or have anything else clinically going on, their risk of labor is actually pretty small. And if their cervix is less than 1.5 centimeters, well, my goodness, they don't have any cervix left. <laughs> they need to stay for observation, mag sulfate if they're under 32 weeks, and antenatal steroids with GBS coverage. All right, so those are our two landmarks. Okay, those are the two field goal posts on one end, greater than 2.5, at the other end, less than 1.5. So we all know what to do with those two. Those are the two extremes. On one end, you go home. On the other, you stay. But fetal fibronectin comes in in the middle when the transvaginal ultrasound has an average length between those two values. So between 1.5 and 2.5, that is the gray zone or the indeterminate zone of cervical length. Here's where you need a referee. And here is where FFN comes into play. According to the published protocols, including the Mayo Clinic's protocols and the IAMS protocol, those patients in this gray indeterminate zone who are FFN negative may be reliably sent home with close outpatient follow-up, noting that their risk of delivery within the next 7 up to 14 days is actually quite small. Those patients in this gray indeterminate zone with positive FFN results do have a higher risk of going into preterm labor within the next seven days, so they should be kept in-house for steroids, magnesium sulfate if applicable, and GBS coverage to be safe. 
By adding fetal fibronectin to the transvaginal ultrasound algorithm, then we can maximize the negative predictive value of FFN. So when the patient presents with signs and symptoms of preterm labor between 22 and 35 weeks, the first thing to do is collect all the relevant swabs. That can include GC and chlamydia PCR, vaginitis panel 3, a Cathy wave if applicable, and then collecting the swab for FFN but holding it and sending it only if necessary. Then the cervical examination is done. If the patient is found to be greater than 2 centimeters dilated or grossly ruptured, well, she doesn't even qualify for the TVU-FFN protocol because she has other issues going on. But if the cervical dilation is less than 2 centimeters and there's no evidence of gross rupture, then the transvaginal ultrasound can be done first with FFN to follow if the results are in that gray zone. All right, podcast family, hang in there because we're getting towards the end. And now that we've covered the protocol and what FFN is meant to do and what it's not meant to do by itself, I leave you with a clinical dilemma. All right, Matt, here's your pre-board prep. If you have a patient who is contracting and qualifies for the transvaginal ultrasound FFN algorithm and you perform that and you find the cervical length is found to be in that gray zone between 1.5 and 2.5 centimeters and you find that her follow-up FFN result is negative, well, does it help to still aggressively manage these patients? In other words, you get the test, she's contracting, FFN is negative and you're like, well, she's still having contractions, I'm going to keep her anyway. Is there any difference in keeping them versus in sending them home? I mean, if we believe the test and it's over 99% negative predictive value, they're not going to deliver. Well, this was actually answered and presented at the SMFM 27th annual meeting back in 2007. This was later published in 2008 in the Journal of Perinatal Medicine. The title of this presentation and article was, quote, Negative Fetal Fibronectin and Who is Still Managed Aggressively? Does it help? This was published by Pilaz et al., who was out of Cornell, and they published their experience with this very same scenario. All right, so everybody good? What's the scenario between 22 and 35 weeks? Actively contracting, they have a negative FFN, and some of the providers said, I don't care what it says, I'm going to keep them anyway. Did aggressive treatment help? versus just sending them home like FFN is directing you to do. These authors did a retrospective review from December 2004 to July of 2006. They had 126 patients who presented to labor and delivery with complaints of either pressure or contractions or discharge. They then proceeded to find 111 patients who ended up having negative fetal fibronective testing, and then they looked at these patients specifically. Interesting, out of the 111 patients who had negative FFN tests at time of presentation and evaluation, 34% of these patients were managed aggressively. They defined aggressive treatment as admission to the hospital, tocolytic therapy, antibiotics, and steroid use. For those 38 patients who were managed aggressively and 73 patients who were managed expectantly, they then followed up to see who delivered sooner than the other. Now, compared to the aggressively managed cohort, the expectant managed group had evaluation and triage, and once they had a negative FFN test, they were just sent home. Now, at baseline, the two groups of patients were similar to respective age, gestational age at testing, as well as whether they had a prior preterm delivery. 
Interestingly, the aggressively managed patients were more dilated, more effaced, and contracting more frequently than those managed expectantly, which makes sense, right? I mean, that's why the provider was uncomfortable sending them home, and those that were contracting more frequently were kept there for observation, despite having a negative FFN. Well, what happened? Well, the results showed that in both groups, the gestational age of delivery was 38 weeks. Now, remember, they both had negative FFNs, all right? And one group, I'm really worried about you, they're going to deliver. The other one, I'm not so worried, but everybody's got a negative FFN. Well, there was no difference in the gestational age at delivery. So the authors concluded that based on these results, patients that were managed aggressively compared to those that were managed more expectantly following a negative fetal fibronectin test actually had the exact same outcomes. So it was their conclusion that doing aggressive treatment after a negative FFN when done appropriately really had no value. Now, I know that makes people uncomfortable. I mean, you want me to send somebody home who's contracting? No, I don't. (laughs) I want you to get the negative FFN test, get them hydrated, do an evaluation to make sure you're not missing infections, make sure you're not missing anything else. That's why it's not just the FFN test results itself. It's the entire clinical picture. So what's the take-home message? If you get a test, well, you should kind of believe what you're getting or don't get the test at all. The negative predictive value of FFN when done correctly following the TVU ultrasound algorithm them really does have good negative predictive value and those patients likely can be sent home. But no, I don't send them home contracting. We still have an ethical obligation to rule out other issues and to make sure that they're safe. Remember what we said a little earlier in this podcast, those patients that had FFN as part of the workup ended up delivering later than those who didn't because of this aggressive search. They still need a workup. Remember, as part of the initial swab collection, it's a good idea and it's medical expert opinion to look for sources of possible contractions. So I do get a gonorrhea and chlamydia PCR. I look for a VP3 for vaginitis or trichomonas. I get a cathuase since there's some weak evidence that back to your may cause contractions. It's that evaluation plus the FFN, which is probably what helps patients deliver later because we're actively looking for a problem to treat. All patients get hydration and a little bit of sedation since therapeutic rest is known to stop contractions and give patients symptomatic rest. These interventions are known to help stop threatened false preterm labor. Remember, once preterm labor is active, it's hard to stop that train. We can possibly stop for 24 to 48 hours with tocolytics just long enough to get steroids on board. But remember, we're not really making a dent really in the overall preterm birth scenario. All right, Matt, I hope this podcast episode really helped figure out the clinical data around FFN. FFN can be used to help predict which patients may benefit from interventions to prepare the child for the possibility of early delivery and which patients probably don't need those interventions. Remember, although FFN is not meant to prevent preterm birth, the algorithm and the workup that goes with it can actually help ward off delivery compared to not doing this assessment to begin with. TV ultrasound and FFN used in combination for that gray zone, the indeterminate cervical length of 1.5 to 2.5 can help better triage these patients who may best need interventions and who can go home. Remember that keeping patients for overnight observation and aggressive management is totally acceptable. It's okay to do that. 
but is probably not necessary according to the data for those who test negative with FFN. But here's the catch. You've got to make sure that the test is done correctly. I've walked in into some people that are swabbing the introitus for FFN. No, it's got to be deep into the posterior fornix. So the value of the test is only as good as the test is collected. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We've covered the TV ultrasound FFN protocol. As always, we're thankful for you. Keep those Facebook messages coming. They always make me smile, and they always give me great ideas for new podcast content. Y'all take care, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.